This special podcast is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. To support our work and get bonus episodes of our podcasts, go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus to sign up. United States Department of Justice report on the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election by Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III, Washington, D.C., March 2019. Introduction to Volume 1. The Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. Evidence of Russian government operations began to surface in mid-2016. In June, the Democratic National Committee and its cyber response team publicly announced that Russian hackers had compromised its computer network. Releases of hacked materials, hacks that public reporting soon attributed to the Russian government, began that same month. Additional releases followed in July through the organization WikiLeaks, with further releases in October and November. In late July 2016, soon after WikiLeaks' first release of stolen documents, a foreign government contacted the FBI about a May 2016 encounter with Trump campaign foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos had suggested to a representative of that foreign government that the Trump campaign had received indications from the Russian government that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information damaging to the Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. That information prompted the FBI on July 31, 2016, to open an investigation into whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign were coordinating with the Russian government in its interference activities. That fall, Two federal agencies jointly announced that the Russian government, quote, directed recent compromises of emails from U.S. persons and institutions, including U.S. political organizations. And these thefts and disclosures are intended to interfere with the U.S. election process, end quote. After the election, in late December 2016, the United States imposed sanctions on Russia for having interfered in the election. By early 2017, several congressional committees were examining Russia's interference in the election. Within the executive branch, these investigatory efforts ultimately led to the May 2017 appointment of Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III. The order appointing the special counsel authorized him to investigate, quote, the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election, end quote, including any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. As set forth in detail in this report, the special counsel's investigation established that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election principally through two operations. First, a Russian entity carried out a social media campaign that favored presidential candidate Donald J. Trump and disparaged presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Second, a Russian intelligence service conducted computer intrusion operations against entities, employees, and volunteers working on the Clinton campaign and then released stolen documents. The investigation also identified numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. Although the investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and work to secure that outcome, and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Below, we describe the evidentiary considerations underpinning statements about the results of our investigation and the special counsel's charging decisions, and we then provide an overview of the two volumes of our report. The report describes actions and events that the special counsel's office found to be supported by the evidence collected in our investigation. In some instances, the report points out the absence of evidence or conflicts in the evidence about a particular fact or event. 
In other instances, when substantial, credible evidence enabled the office to reach a conclusion with confidence, the report states that the investigation established that certain actions or events occurred. A statement that the investigation did not establish particular facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. In evaluating whether evidence about collective action of multiple individuals constituted a crime, we applied the framework of conspiracy law, not the concept of collusion. In so doing, the office recognized that the word collude was used in communications with the acting attorney general confirming certain aspects of the investigation's scope and that the term has frequently been invoked in public reporting about the investigation. But collusion is not a specific offense or theory of liability found in the United States Code nor is it a term of art in federal criminal law. For those reasons, the office's focus in analyzing questions of joint criminal liability was on conspiracy as defined in federal law. In connection with that analysis, we addressed the factual question whether members of the Trump campaign coordinated, a term that appears in the appointment order, with Russian election interference activities. Like collusion, coordination does not have a settled definition in federal criminal law. We understood coordination to require an agreement, tacit or express, between the Trump campaign and the Russian government on election interference. That requires more than the two parties taking actions that were informed by or responsive to the other's actions or interests. We applied the term coordination in that sense when stating in the report that the investigation did not establish that the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. The report on our investigation consists of two volumes. Volume 1 describes the factual results of the special counsel's investigation of Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and its interactions with the Trump campaign. Section 1 describes the scope of the investigation. Sections 2 and 3 describe the principal ways Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election. Section 4 describes links between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. Section 5 sets forth the special counsel's charging decisions. Volume 2 addresses the president's actions towards the FBI's investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and related matters, and his actions towards the special counsel's investigation. Volume 2 separately states its framework and the considerations that guided that investigation. Executive Summary to Volume 1. Russian Social Media Campaign. The Internet Research Agency, IRA, carried out the earliest Russian interference operations identified by the investigation a social media campaign designed to provoke and amplify political and social discord in the United States. The IRA was based in St. Petersburg, Russia, and received funding from Russian oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin and companies he controlled. Prigozhin is widely reported to have ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Redaction, Harm to Ongoing Matter In mid-2014, the IRA sent employees to the United States on an intelligence-gathering mission with instructions, redaction, harm to ongoing matter. The IRA later used social media accounts and interest groups to sow discord in the U.S. political system through what it termed information warfare. The campaign evolved from a generalized program designed in 2014 and 2015 to undermine the U.S. electoral system to a targeted operation that by early 2016 favored candidate Trump and disparaged candidate Clinton. The IRA's operation also included the purchase of political advertisements on social media in the names of U.S. persons and entities, as well as the staging of political rallies inside the United States. To organize those rallies, IRA employees posed as U.S. grassroots entities and persons and made contact with Trump supporters and Trump campaign officials in the United States. 
The investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. persons conspired or coordinated with the IRA. Section 2 of this report details the office's investigation of the Russian social media campaign. Russian Hacking Operations At the same time that the IRA operation began to focus on supporting candidate Trump in early 2016, the Russian government employed a second form of interference, cyber intrusions, hacking, and releases of hacked materials damaging to the Clinton campaign. The Russian intelligence service, known as the Main Intelligence Directorate of the General Staff of the Russian Army, or GRU, carried out these operations. In March 2016, the GRU began hacking the email accounts of Clinton campaign volunteers and employees, including campaign chairman John Podesta. In April 2016, the GRU hacked into the computer networks of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, or DCCC, and the Democratic National Committee, or DNC. The GRU stole hundreds of thousands of documents from the compromised email accounts and networks. Around the time that the DNC announced in mid-June 2016 the Russian government's role in hacking its network, the GRU began disseminating stolen materials through the fictitious online personas DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0. The GRU later released additional materials through the organization WikiLeaks. The presidential campaign of Donald J. Trump showed interest in WikiLeaks's releases of documents and welcomed their potential to damage candidate Clinton. Beginning in June 2016, redaction, harm to ongoing matter, forecast to senior Clinton officials that WikiLeaks would release information damaging to candidate Clinton. WikiLeaks's first release came in July 2016. Around the same time, candidate Trump announced that he hoped Russia would recover emails described as missing from a private server used by Clinton when she was Secretary of State. He later said that he was speaking sarcastically. Redaction, harm to ongoing matter. WikiLeaks began releasing Podesta's stolen emails on October 7, 2016, less than one hour after a U.S. media outlet released video considered damaging to candidate Trump. Section 3 of this report details the office's investigation into the Russian hacking operations, as well as other efforts by Trump campaign supporters to obtain Clinton-related emails. Russian Contacts with the Campaign The social media campaign and the GRU hacking operations coincided with a series of contacts between Trump campaign officials and individuals with ties to the Russian government. The office investigated whether those contacts reflected or resulted in the campaign conspiring or coordinating with Russia in its election interference activities. Although the investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and worked to secure that outcome, and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. The Russian context consisted of business connections, offers of assistance to the campaign, Invitations for candidate Trump and Putin to meet in person, invitations for campaign officials and representatives of the Russian government to meet, and policy positions seeking improved U.S.-Russian relations. Section 4 of this report details the contacts between Russia and the Trump campaign during the campaign and transition periods, the most salient of which are summarized below in chronological order. 2015. Some of the earliest contacts were made in connection with a Trump Organization real estate project in Russia known as Trump Tower Moscow. Candidate Trump signed a letter of intent for Trump Tower Moscow by November 2015, 
And in January 2016, Trump Organization Executive Michael Cohen emailed and spoke about the project with the Office of Russian Government Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov. The Trump Organization pursued the project through at least June 2016, including by considering travel to Russia by Cohen and candidate Trump. Spring 2016. Campaign foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos made early contact with Joseph Mifsud, a London-based professor who had connections to Russia and traveled to Moscow in April 2016. Immediately upon his return to London from that trip, Mifsud told Papadopoulos that the Russian government had, quote, dirt, unquote, on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. One week later, in the first week of May 2016, Papadopoulos suggested to a representative of a foreign government that the Trump campaign had received indications from the Russian government that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information damaging to candidate Clinton. Throughout that period of time, and for several months thereafter, Papadopoulos worked with Mifsud and two Russian nationals to arrange a meeting between the campaign and the Russian government. No meeting took place. Summer 2016 Russian outreach to the Trump campaign continued into the summer of 2016 as candidate Trump was becoming the presumptive Republican nominee for president. On June 9, 2016, for example, a Russian lawyer met with senior Trump campaign officials Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and campaign chairman Paul Manafort to deliver what the email proposing the meeting had described as, quote, official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary, close quote. The materials were offered to Trump Jr. as, quote, part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump, close quote. The written communications setting up the meeting showed that the campaign anticipated receiving information from Russia that could assist candidate Trump's electoral prospects, but the Russian lawyer's presentation did not provide such information. Days after the June 9th meeting, on June 14, 2016, a cybersecurity firm in the DNC announced that Russian government hackers had infiltrated the DNC and obtained access to opposition research on candidate Trump, among other documents. In July 2016, campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Page traveled in his personal capacity to Moscow and gave the keynote address at the New Economic School. Page had lived and worked in Russia between 2003 and 2007. After returning to the United States, Page became acquainted with at least two Russian intelligence officers, one of whom was later charged in 2015 with conspiracy to act as an unregistered agent of Russia. Page's July 2016 trip to Moscow and his advocacy for pro-Russian foreign policy drew media attention. The campaign then distanced itself from Page and, by late September 2016, removed him from the campaign. July 2016 was also the month WikiLeaks first released emails stolen by the GRU from the DNC. On July 22, 2016, WikiLeaks posted thousands of internal DNC documents revealing information about the Clinton campaign. Within days, there was public reporting that U.S. intelligence agencies had high confidence that the Russian government was behind the theft of emails and documents from the DNC. And within a week of the release, a Russian government informed the FBI about its May 2016 interaction with Papadopoulos and his statement that the Russian government could assist the Trump campaign. On July 31, 2016, based on the foreign government reporting, the FBI opened an investigation into potential coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. Separately, on August 2, 2016, Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort met in New York City with his longtime business associate Konstantin Kilimnik, who the FBI assesses to have ties to Russian intelligence. 
Kilimnik requested the meeting to deliver in person a peace plan for Ukraine that Manafort acknowledged to the special counsel's office was a backdoor way for Russia to control part of eastern Ukraine. Both men believed the plan would require candidate Trump's assent to succeed were he to be elected president. They also discussed the status of the Trump campaign and Manafort's strategy for winning Democratic votes in Midwestern states. Months before that meeting, Manafort had caused internal polling data to be shared with Kilimnik, and the sharing continued for some period of time after their August meeting. Fall 2016 On October 7, 2016, the media released video of candidate Trump speaking in graphic terms about women years earlier, which was considered damaging to his candidacy. Less than an hour later, WikiLeaks made its second release, thousands of John Podesta's emails that had been stolen by the GRU in late March 2016. The FBI and other government institutions were at that time continuing their investigation of suspected Russian government efforts to interfere in the presidential election. That same day, October 7th, the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence issued a joint public statement, quote, that the Russian government directed the recent compromises of emails from U.S. persons and institutions, including from U.S. political institutions. Those, quote, thefts and the, quote, disclosures of the hacked materials through online platforms such as WikiLeaks, the statement continued, quote, are intended to interfere with the U.S. election process, end quote. Post-2016 election. Immediately after the November 8th election, Russian government officials and prominent Russian businessmen began trying to make inroads into the new administration. The most senior levels of the Russian government encouraged these efforts. The Russian embassy made contacts hours after the election to congratulate the president-elect and to arrange a call with President Putin. Several Russian businessmen picked up the effort from there. Kirill Dmitriev, the chief executive officer of Russia's sovereign wealth fund, was among the Russians who tried to make contact with the incoming administration. In early December, a business associate steered Dmitriev to Eric Prince, a supporter of the Trump campaign and an associate of senior Trump advisor Steve Bannon. Dmitriev and Prince later met face-to-face in January 2017 in the Seychelles and discussed U.S.-Russia relations. During the same period, another business associate introduced Dmitriev to a friend of Jared Kushner who had not served on the campaign or the transition team. Dmitriev and Kushner's friend collaborated on a short written reconciliation plan for the United States and Russia, which Dmitriev implied had been cleared through Putin. The friend gave that proposal to Kushner before the inauguration, and Kushner later gave copies to Bannon and incoming Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. On December 29, 2016, then-President Obama imposed sanctions on Russia for having interfered in the election. Incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn called Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak and asked Russia not to escalate the situation in response to the sanctions. The following day, Putin announced that Russia would not take retaliatory measures in response to the sanctions at that time. Hours later, President-elect Trump tweeted, quote, Great move on delay, parenthesis, by V. Putin, end parenthesis, end quote. The next day, on December 31, 2016, Kislyak called Flynn and told him the request had been received at the highest levels and Russia had chosen not to retaliate as a result of Flynn's request. On January 6, 2017, members of the intelligence community briefed President-elect Trump on a joint assessment, drafted and coordinated among the Central Intelligence Agency, FBI, and National Security Agency, that concluded with high confidence that Russia had intervened in the election through a variety of means to assist Trump's candidacy and harm Clinton's. A declassified version of the assessment was publicly released that same day. 
Between mid-January 2017 and early February 2017, three congressional committees, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, HPSCI, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, SSCI, and the Senate Judiciary Committee, SJC, announced that they would conduct inquiries, or had already been conducting inquiries, into Russian interference in the election. Then-FBI Director James Comey later confirmed to Congress the existence of the FBI's investigation into Russian interference that had begun before the election. On March 20, 2017, in open session testimony before HPSCI, Comey stated, I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election, and that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. As with any counterintelligence investigation, this will also include an assessment of whether any crimes were committed. The investigation continued under then-Director Comey for the next seven weeks until May 9, 2017, when President Trump fired Comey as FBI director, an action which is analyzed in Volume 2 of the report. On May 17, 2017, Acting Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed the special counsel and authorized him to conduct the investigation that Comey had confirmed in his congressional testimony, as well as matters arising directly from the investigation and any other matters within the scope of 28 CFR Section 600.4a, which generally covers efforts to interfere with or obstruct the investigation. President Trump reacted negatively to the special counsel's appointment. He told advisors that it was the end of his presidency, sought to have Attorney General Jefferson Jeff Sessions unrecused from the Russia investigation and to have the special counsel removed, and engaged in efforts to curtail the special counsel's investigation and prevent the disclosure of evidence to it, including through public and private contacts with potential witnesses. Those and related actions are described and analyzed in Volume 2 of the report. The Special Counsel's Charging Decisions in reaching the charging decisions described in Volume 1 of this report, the office determined whether the conduct it found amounted to a violation of federal criminal law chargeable under the principles of federal prosecution. The standard set forth in the Justice Manual is whether the conduct constitutes a crime. If so, whether admissible evidence would probably be sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction, and whether prosecution would serve a substantial federal interest that could not be adequately served by prosecution elsewhere or through non-criminal alternatives. Section 5 of the report provides detailed explanations of the office's charging decisions, which contain three main components. First, the office determined that Russia's two principal interference operations in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, the social media campaign and the hacking and dumping operations, violated U.S. criminal law. Many of the individuals and entities involved in the social media campaign have been charged with participating in a conspiracy to defraud the United States by undermining, through deceptive acts, the work of federal agencies charged with regulating foreign influence in U.S. elections, as well as related counts of identity theft. Separately, Russian intelligence officers who carried out the hacking into Democratic Party computers and the personal email accounts of individuals affiliated with the Clinton campaign conspired to violate, among other federal laws, the Federal Computer Intrusion Statute, and they have been so charged. Redaction Harm to Ongoing Matter Second, while the investigation identified numerous links between individuals with ties to the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign, the evidence was not sufficient to support criminal charges. 
Among other things, the evidence was not sufficient to charge any campaign official as an unregistered agent of the Russian government or other Russian principal. And our evidence about the June 9, 2016 meeting and WikiLeaks's releases of hacked materials was not sufficient to charge a criminal campaign finance violation. Further, the evidence was not sufficient to charge that any member of the Trump campaign conspired with representatives of the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election. Third, the investigation established that several individuals affiliated with the Trump campaign lied to the office and to Congress about their interactions with Russian-affiliated individuals and related matters. Those lies materially impaired the investigation of Russian election interference. The office charged some of those lies as violations of the federal false statements statute. Former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn pleaded guilty to lying about his interactions with Russian Ambassador Kislyak during the transition period. George Papadopoulos, a foreign policy advisor during the campaign period, pleaded guilty to lying to investigators about, inter alia, the nature and timing of his interactions with Joseph Mifsud, the professor who told Papadopoulos that the Russians had dirt on candidate Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. Former Trump Organization attorney Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress about the Trump-Moscow project. Redaction, harm to ongoing matter. And in February 2019, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia found that Manafort lied to the office and the grand jury concerning his interactions and communications with Konstantin Kilimnik about Trump campaign polling data and a peace plan for Ukraine. The office investigated several other events that have been publicly reported to involve potential Russia-related contacts. For example, the investigation established that interactions between Russian Ambassador Kislyak and the Trump campaign officials, both at the candidate's April 2016 foreign policy speech in Washington, D.C., and during the week of the Republican National Convention, were brief, public, and non-substantive. And the investigation did not establish that one campaign official's efforts to dilute a portion of the Republican Party platform on providing assistance to Ukraine were undertaken at the behest of candidate Trump or Russia. The investigation also did not establish that a meeting between Kislyak and Sessions in September 2016 at Sessions' Senate office included any more than a passing mention of the presidential campaign. The investigation did not always yield admissible information or testimony, or a complete picture of the activities undertaken by subjects of the investigation. Some individuals invoked their Fifth Amendment right against compelled self-incrimination and were not, in the office's judgment, appropriate candidates for grants of immunity. The office limited its pursuit of other witnesses and information, such as information known to attorneys or individuals claiming to be members of the media, in light of internal Department of Justice policies. Some of the information obtained via court process, moreover, was presumptively covered by legal privilege and was screened from investigators by a filter or, quote, taint team. Even when individuals testified or agreed to be interviewed, they sometimes provided information that was false or incomplete, leaving to some of the false statements charges described above. And the office faced practical limits on its ability to access relevant evidence as well. Numerous witnesses and subjects lived abroad, and documents were held outside the United States. Further, the office learned that some of the individuals we interviewed or whose conduct we investigated, including some associated with the Trump campaign, deleted relevant communications or communicated during the relevant period using applications that feature encryption or that do not provide for long-term retention of data or communications records. In such cases, the office was not able to corroborate witness statements through comparison to contemporaneous communications or fully question witnesses about statements that appeared inconsistent with other known facts.
accordingly. While this report embodies factual and legal determinations that the office believes to be accurate and complete to the greatest extent possible, given those identified gaps, the office cannot rule out the possibility that the unavailable information would shed additional light on or cast in a new light the events described in this report. Introduction to Volume 2 Beginning in 2017, the President of the United States took a variety of actions towards the ongoing FBI investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and related matters that raised questions about whether he had obstructed justice. The order appointing the special counsel gave this office jurisdiction to investigate matters that arose directly from the FBI's Russia investigation, including whether the president had obstructed justice in connection with Russia-related investigations. The special counsel's jurisdiction also covered potentially obstructive acts related to the special counsel's investigation itself. This volume of our report summarises our obstruction of justice investigation of the President. We first describe the considerations that guided our obstruction of justice investigation and then provide an overview of this volume. First, a traditional prosecution or declination decision entails a binary determination to initiate or decline a prosecution. But we determine not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. The Office of Legal Counsel, hereafter OLC, has issued an opinion finding that, quote, the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would impermissibly undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions, end quote, in violation of, quote, the constitutional separation of powers, end quote. Given the role of the special counsel as an attorney in the Department of Justice and the framework of the special counsel regulations, this office accepted OLC's legal conclusion for the purpose of exercising prosecutorial jurisdiction. And apart from OLC's constitutional view, we recognised that a federal criminal accusation against a sitting president would place burdens on the president's capacity to govern and potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. Second, while the OLC opinion concludes that a sitting president may not be prosecuted, it recognises that a criminal investigation during the president's term is permissible. The OLC opinion also recognises that a president does not have immunity after he leaves office. And if individuals other than the president committed an obstruction offence, they may be prosecuted at this time. Given those considerations, the facts known to us and the strong public interest in safeguarding the integrity of the criminal justice system, we conducted a thorough factual investigation in order to preserve the evidence when memories were fresh and documentary materials were available. Third, we considered whether to evaluate the conduct we investigated under the Justice Manual Standards governing prosecution and declination decisions, but we determined not to apply an approach that could potentially result in a judgment that the President committed crimes. The threshold step under the Justice Manual Standards is to assess whether a person's conduct, quote, constitutes a federal offence. U.S. Department of Justice, Justice Manual, Section 927.220, 2018. Hereafter, Justice Manual. Fairness concerns counseled against potentially reaching that judgment when no charges can be brought. 
The ordinary means for an individual to respond to an accusation is through a speedy and public trial, with all the procedural protections that surround a criminal case. An individual who believes he was wrongly accused can use that process to seek to clear his name. In contrast, a prosecutor's judgment that crimes were committed but that no charges will be brought affords no such adversarial opportunity for public name-clearing before an impartial adjudicator. The concerns about the fairness of such a determination would be heightened in the case of a sitting president, where a federal prosecutor's accusation of a crime, even in an internal report, could carry consequences that extend beyond the realm of criminal justice. OLC noted similar concerns about sealed indictments. Even if an indictment were sealed during the president's term, OLC reasoned, quote, it would be very difficult to preserve an indictment's secrecy, unquote. And if an indictment became public, quote, the stigma and opprobrium, unquote, could imperil the president's ability to govern. Although a prosecutor's internal report would not represent a formal public accusation akin to an indictment, the possibility of the report's public disclosure and the absence of a neutral adjudicatory forum to review its findings counseled against potentially determining, quote, that the person's conduct constitutes a federal offence. That's Justice Manual Section 9-27.220. Fourth. If we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, however, we were unable to reach that judgment. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Executive Summary to Volume 2 Our obstruction of justice inquiry focused on a series of actions by the president that related to the Russian interference investigations, including the president's conduct towards the law enforcement officials overseeing the investigations and the witnesses to relevant events. Factual Results of the Obstruction Investigation The key issues and events we examined include the following. The campaign's response to reports about Russian support for Trump. During the 2016 presidential campaign, questions arose about the Russian government's apparent support for candidate Trump. After WikiLeaks released politically damaging Democratic Party emails that were reported to have been hacked by Russia, Trump publicly expressed scepticism that Russia was responsible for the hacks at the same time that he and other campaign officials privately sought information, redacted because of harm to ongoing matter, without any further planned WikiLeaks releases. Trump also denied having any business in or connections to Russia, even though, as late as June 2016, the Trump Organization had been pursuing a licensing deal for a skyscraper to be built in Russia called Trump Tower Moscow. After the election, the president expressed concerns to advisers that reports of Russia's election interference might lead the public to question the legitimacy of his election. Conduct involving FBI Director Comey and Michael Flynn in mid-January 2017, incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn falsely denied to the Vice President, 
other administration officials and FBI agents that he had talked to Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak about Russia's response to US sanctions on Russia for its election interference. On January 27th, the day after the president was told that Flynn had lied to the vice president and had made similar statements to the FBI, the president invited FBI Director Comey to a private dinner at the White House and told Comey that he needed loyalty. On February 14th, the day after the president requested Flynn's resignation, the president told an outside advisor, Now that we fired Flynn, the Russia thing is over, end quote. The advisor disagreed and said the investigations would continue. Later that afternoon, the president cleared the Oval Office to have a one-on-one meeting with Comey. Referring to the FBI's investigation of Flynn, the president said, quote, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He's a good guy. I hope you can let this go, end quote. Shortly after requesting Flynn's resignation and speaking privately to Comey, the president sought to have Deputy National Security Advisor K.T. McFarland draft an internal letter stating that the president had not directed Flynn to discuss sanctions with Kislyak. McFarland declined because she did not know whether that was true, and a White House counsel's office attorney thought that the request would look like a quid pro quo for an ambassadorship she had been offered. The President's Reaction to the Continuing Russia Investigation In February 2017, Attorney General Jeff Sessions began to assess whether he had to recuse himself from campaign-related investigations because of his role in the Trump campaign. In early March, the President told White House Counsel Donald McGahn to stop Sessions from recusing. And after Sessions announced his recusal on March 2nd, the president expressed anger at the decision and told advisers that he should have an attorney general who would protect him. That weekend, the president took Sessions aside at an event and urged him to, quote, unrecuse. Later in March, Comey publicly disclosed at a congressional hearing that the FBI was investigating, quote, the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election, close quote, including any links or coordination between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. In the following days, the president reached out to the director of national intelligence and the leaders of the Central Intelligence Agency, hereafter CIA, and the National Security Agency, hereafter NSA, to ask them what they could do to publicly dispel the suggestion that the president had any connection to the Russian election interference effort. The president also twice called Comey directly, notwithstanding guidance from McGahn to avoid direct contacts with the Department of Justice. Comey had previously assured the president that the FBI was not investigating him personally, and the president asked Comey to, quote, lift the cloud, unquote, of the Russia investigation by saying that publicly. The President's Termination of Comey On May 3, 2017, Comey testified in a congressional hearing, but declined to answer questions about whether the President was personally under investigation. Within days, the President decided to terminate Comey. The president insisted that the termination letter, which was written for public release, state that Comey had informed the president that he was not under investigation. The day of the firing, 
the White House maintained that Comey's termination resulted from independent recommendations from the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General that Comey should be discharged for mishandling the Hillary Clinton email investigation. But the President had decided to fire Comey before hearing from the Department of Justice. The day after firing Comey, the President told Russian officials that he had, quote, faced great pressure because of Russia, unquote, which had been, quote, taken off, unquote, by Comey's firing. The next day, the President acknowledged in a television interview that he was going to fire Comey regardless of the Department of Justice's recommendation and that when he, quote, decided to just do it, unquote, he was thinking that, quote, this thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story, unquote. In response to a question about whether he was angry with Comey about the Russia investigation, the president said, quote, As far as I'm concerned, I want that thing to be absolutely done properly, unquote, adding that firing Comey, quote, might even lengthen the investigation, end quote. The appointment of a special counsel and efforts to remove him. On May 17, 2017, the Acting Attorney General for the Russia Investigation appointed a special counsel to conduct the investigation and related matters. The President reacted to news that a special counsel had been appointed by telling advisers that it was, quote, the end of his presidency, unquote, and demanding that Sessions resign. Sessions submitted his resignation, but the President ultimately did not accept it. The president told aides that the special counsel had conflicts of interest and suggested that the special counsel, therefore, could not serve. The president's advisers told him the asserted conflicts were meritless and had already been considered by the Department of Justice. On June 14, 2017, the media reported that the special counsel's office was investigating whether the president had obstructed justice. Press reports called this a major turning point in the investigation. While Comey had told the president he was not under investigation, following Comey's firing, the president now was under investigation. The president reacted to this news with a series of tweets criticising the Department of Justice and the special counsel's investigation. On June 17, 2017, the President called McGahn at home and directed him to call the Acting Attorney General and say that the Special Counsel had conflicts of interest and must be removed. McGahn did not carry out the direction, however, deciding that he would resign rather than trigger what he regarded as a potential Saturday Night Massacre. Efforts to Curtail the Special Counsel's Investigation Two days after directing McGahn to have the special counsel removed, the president made another attempt to affect the course of the Russia investigation. On June 19, 2017, the president met one-on-one -on -one in the Oval Office with his former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, a trusted advisor outside the government, and dictated a message for Lewandowski to deliver to Sessions. The message said that Sessions should publicly announce that, notwithstanding his recusal from the Russia investigation, the investigation was very unfair to the president. The president had done nothing wrong and Sessions planned to meet with the special counsel and, quote, let him move forward with investigating election meddling for future elections. Lewandowski said he understood, sorry, Lewandowski said he understood what the president wanted Sessions to do. 
one month later, in another private meeting with Lewandowski on July 19, 2017, the president asked about the status of his message for Sessions to limit the special counsel investigation to future election interference. Lewandowski told the president that the message would be delivered soon. Hours after that meeting, the president publicly criticised Sessions in an interview with the New York Times and then issued a series of tweets, making it clear that Sessions' job was in jeopardy. Lewandowski did not want to deliver the president's message personally, so he asked senior White House official Rick Dearborn to deliver it to Sessions. Dearborn was uncomfortable with the task and did not follow through. Efforts to prevent public disclosure of evidence. In the summer of 2017, the president learned that media outlets were asking questions about the June 9, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower between senior campaign officials, including Donald Trump Jr., and a Russian lawyer who was said to be offering damaging information about Hillary Clinton as, quote, part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump, end quote. On several occasions, the president directed aides not to publicly disclose the emails setting up the June 9th meeting, suggesting that the emails would not leak and that the number of lawyers with access to them should be limited. Before the emails became public, the president edited a press statement for Trump Jr. by deleting a line that acknowledged that the meeting was with, quote, an individual who Trump Jr. was told might have information helpful to the campaign, end quote, and instead said only that the meeting was about adoptions of Russian children. When the press asked questions about the president's involvement in Trump Jr.'s statement, the president's personal lawyer repeatedly denied the president had played any role. Further efforts to have the Attorney General take control of the investigation. In early summer 2017, the president called Sessions at home and again asked him to reverse his recusal from the Russia investigation. Sessions did not reverse his recusal. In October 2017, the president met privately with Sessions in the Oval Office and asked him to, quote, take a look, unquote, at investigating Clinton. In December 2017, shortly after Flynn pleaded guilty pursuant to a cooperation agreement, the president met with Sessions in the Oval Office and suggested, according to notes taken by a senior advisor, that if Sessions unrecused and took back supervision of the Russia investigation, he would be a, quote, hero. The president told Sessions, quote, I'm not going to do anything or direct you to do anything. I just want to be treated fairly, unquote. In response, Sessions volunteered that he had never seen anything improper on the campaign and told the president there was, quote, a whole new leadership team in place. He did not unrecuse. Efforts to have McGahn deny that the president had ordered him to have the special counsel removed. In early 2018, the press reported that the president had directed McGahn to have the special counsel removed in June 2017 and that McGahn had threatened to resign rather than carry out the order. The president reacted to the news stories by directing White House officials to tell McGahn to dispute the story and create a record stating he had not been ordered to have the special counsel removed. McGahn told those officials that the media reports were accurate in stating that the president had directed McGahn to have the special counsel removed. The president then met with McGahn in the Oval Office and again pressured him to deny the reports. 
In the same meeting, the president also asked McGahn why he had told the special counsel about the president's efforts to remove the special counsel and why McGahn took notes of his conversations with the president. McGahn refused to back away from what he remembered happening and perceived the president to be testing his mettle. Conduct toward Flynn, Manafort and redacted because of harm to ongoing matter. After Flynn withdrew from a joint defence agreement with the president and began cooperating with the government, the president's personal counsel left a message for Flynn's attorneys reminding them of the president's warm feelings towards Flynn, which he said still remains, and asking for a heads up if Flynn knew, quote, information that implicates the president, unquote. When Flynn's counsel reiterated that Flynn could no longer share information pursuant to a joint defence agreement, the president's personal counsel said he would make sure that the president knew that Flynn's actions reflected, quote, hostility towards the president. During Manafort's prosecution and when the jury in his criminal trial was deliberating, the president praised Manafort in public, said that Manafort was being treated unfairly and declined to rule out a pardon. After Manafort was convicted, the president called Manafort, quote, a brave man for refusing to break and said that flipping, quote, almost ought to be outlawed. Then further sentences are redacted because of harm to an ongoing matter. Conduct involving Michael Cohen. The president's conduct towards Michael Cohen, a former Trump Organization executive, changed from praise for Cohen when he falsely minimized the president's involvement in the Trump Tower Moscow project to castigation of Cohen when he became a cooperating witness. From September 2015 to June 2016, Cohen had pursued the Trump Tower Moscow project on behalf of the Trump Organization and had briefed candidate Trump on the project numerous times, including discussing whether Trump should travel to Russia to advance the deal. In 2017, Cohen provided false testimony to Congress about the project, including stating that he had only briefed Trump on the project three times and never discussed travel to Russia with him in an effort to adhere to a party line that Cohen said was developed to minimize the president's connections to Russia. While preparing for his congressional testimony, Cohen had extensive discussions with the president's personal counsel, who, according to Cohen, said that Cohen should, quote, stay on message, unquote, and not contradict the president. After the FBI searched Cohen's home and office in April 2018, the president publicly asserted that Cohen would not, quote, flip, unquote, contacted him directly to tell him to stay strong and privately passed messages of support to him. Cohen also discussed pardons with the president's personal counsel and believed that if he stayed on message, he would be taken care of. But after Cohen began cooperating with the government in the summer of 2018, the president publicly criticised him, called him a rat, and suggested that his family members had committed crimes. Overarching factual issues. We did not make a traditional prosecution decision about these facts, but the evidence we obtained supports several general statements about the president's conduct. Several features of the conduct we investigated distinguish it from typical obstruction of justice cases. 
First, the investigation concerned the president and some of his actions, such as firing the FBI director, involved facially lawful acts within his Article 2 authority, which raises constitutional issues discussed below. At the same time, the president's position as the head of the executive branch provided him with unique and powerful means of influencing official proceedings, subordinate officers and potential witnesses, all of which is relevant to a potential obstruction of justice analysis. Second, unlike cases in which a subject engages in obstruction of justice to cover up a crime, the evidence we obtained did not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian election interference. Although the obstruction statutes do not require proof of such a crime, the absence of that evidence affects the analysis of the president's intent and requires consideration of other possible motives for his conduct. Third, many of the president's acts directed at witnesses, including discouragement of cooperation with the government and suggestions of possible future pardons, took place in public view. That circumstance is unusual, but no principle of law excludes public acts from the reach of the obstruction laws. If the likely effect of public acts is to influence witnesses or alter their testimony, the harm to the justice system's integrity is the same. Although the series of events we investigated involved discrete acts, the overall pattern of the president's conduct toward the investigation can shed light on the nature of the president's acts and the inferences that can be drawn about his intent. In particular, the actions we investigated can be divided into two phases, reflecting a possible shift in the president's motives. The first phase covered the period from the president's first interactions with Comey through the president's firing of Comey. During that time, the president had been repeatedly told he was not personally under investigation. Soon after the firing of Comey and the appointment of the special counsel, however, the president became aware that his own conduct was being investigated in an obstruction of justice inquiry. At that point, the president engaged in a second phase of conduct, involving public attacks on the investigation, non-public efforts to control it, and efforts, in both public and private, to encourage witnesses not to cooperate with the investigation. Judgments about the nature of the president's motives during each phase would be informed by the totality of the evidence. Statutory and Constitutional Defences the President's Council raised statutory and constitutional defences to a possible obstruction of justice analysis of the conduct we investigated. We concluded that none of those legal defences provided a basis for declining to investigate the facts. Statutory defences Consistent with precedent and the Department of Justice's general approach to interpreting obstruction statutes, we concluded that several statutes could apply here. Section 1512C2 is an omnibus obstruction of justice provision that covers a range of obstructive acts directed at pending or contemplated official proceedings. No principle of statutory construction justifies narrowing the provision to cover only conduct that impairs the integrity or availability of evidence. Sections 1503 and 1505 also offer broad protection against obstructive acts directed at pending grand jury, judicial, administrative and congressional proceedings, and they are supplemented by a provision in Section 1512b aimed specifically at conduct intended to prevent or hinder the communication to law enforcement 
of information related to a federal crime. Constitutional defenses. As for constitutional defenses arising from the president's status as the head of the executive branch, we recognize that the Department of Justice and the courts have not definitively resolved these issues. We therefore examine those issues through the framework established by Supreme Court precedent governing separation of powers issues. The Department of Justice and the President's Personal Counsel have recognized that the President is subject to statutes that prohibit obstruction of justice by bribing a witness or suborning perjury because that conduct does not implicate his constitutional authority. With respect to whether the President can be found to have obstructed justice by exercising his powers under Article 2 of the Constitution, we concluded that Congress has authority to prohibit a President's corrupt use of his authority in order to protect the integrity of the administration of justice. Under applicable Supreme Court precedent, the Constitution does not categorically and permanently immunize a president for obstructing justice through the use of his Article II powers. The separation of powers doctrine authorizes Congress to protect official proceedings, including those of courts and grand juries, from corrupt, obstructive acts regardless of their source. We also concluded that any inroad on presidential authority that would occur from prohibiting corrupt acts does not undermine the president's ability to fulfill his constitutional mission. The term corruptly sets a demanding standard. It requires a concrete showing that a person acted with an intent to obtain an improper advantage for himself or someone else, inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. A preclusion of corrupt official action does not diminish the president's ability to exercise Article II powers. For example, the proper supervision of criminal law does not demand freedom for the president to act with a corrupt intention of shielding himself from criminal punishment, avoiding financial liability or preventing personal embarrassment. To the contrary, a statute that prohibits official action undertaken for such corrupt purposes furthers, rather than hinders, the impartial and even-handed administration of the law. It also aligns with the President's constitutional duty to faithfully execute the laws. Finally, we concluded that in the rare case in which a criminal investigation of the President's conduct is justified, inquiries to determine whether the President acted for a corrupt motive should not impermissibly chill his performance of his constitutionally assigned duties. The conclusion that Congress may apply the obstruction laws to the President's corrupt exercise of the powers of office accords with our constitutional system of checks and balances and the principle that no person is above the law. Conclusion Because we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, we did not draw ultimate conclusions about the President's conduct. The evidence we obtained about the President's actions and intent presents difficult issues that would need to be resolved if we were making a traditional prosecutorial judgment. At the same time, if we had confidence, after a thorough investigation of the facts, that the President clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, we are unable to reach that judgment. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the President committed a crime, it also 
does not exonerate him. This podcast was produced by Benjamin Frisch and Cameron Drews. Our engineer was Merritt Jacob. Our readers were Gabriel Roth and June Thomas. To support our work and get bonus episodes of our podcasts, go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus to sign up.